The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Um, So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into our Bible study. So Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight, and we, we know that it's a transition, that it's a change to go from studying Mark's gospel and seeing Jesus and his humility. He certainly has all of the, all of the, uh, the glory of, 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 of God in the flesh. He has all of the knowledge and, and wisdom by the Spirit, Lord, but tonight we... We see, we, we see a little bit of a different Jesus. And, and I think the thing in my mind is just what John must have thought, having been with Jesus during those three years, why the scriptures even tell us on the night of Jesus' arrest and his betrayal that John would have laid his head on Jesus' chest while they were dining. And so, Lord, tonight, we, I pray that, that as we consider uh, Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus, the first of the seven letters, the first of the seven churches, that you would minister to us tonight, that you would be with us, and that, Lord, we would have a sense that you have spoken to us. Lord, I, I have a feeling that if we had been with John on Patmos, and had an opportunity, Jesus, to see you glorified, Lord, that it would have been life-altering, life-changing. And I pray that that will be uh, our, our situation, our experience tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So anyways, the, uh, the title of our, our Bible study tonight, again, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7, uh, is to remember, repent, and return. To remember, repent, and return. Uh, So, in the course of my Christian walk, there have been maybe one, two times where as I've been a part of a church, this is the third church I've been a part of. Initially, I was with Calvary Fallbrook. Uh, That's where Wanda and I, in 1978, we became Christians. We we grew there. We were discipled there for many years. And then um, I, I went to another church in Vista, Calvary Chapel of Vista. Yeah, Calvary Chapel guy and then ultimately here at Maranatha. But, but my point is that in between churches, circumstances and situations, I won't get, I won't get too uh, uh, descriptive, but there have been times that I stopped singing. There have been times that I you know, go into the church sanctuary. I feel very, very comfortable in a church sanctuary. I could be visiting churches. I, I kind of know the liturgy of Calvaries and kind of how things go. Sometimes the songs are a little different or, or you know, the, you know, the size of the, of, of the platform's a little different. I, I really appreciate, at least probably because of my age, when I, when I visit one and, and it's a little dated, you know, it feels a little more like from another century, but I still have great appreciation for it. That's my heritage. And, and there have been times that I've stopped singing. And, and, and usually it's somebody else who points it out to me, you know. Uh, somebody obviously very close to me, you know, we're sitting together and they point out, you know, Danny, why didn't you sing? You know, why didn't you sing? And, and, and it takes me a moment. First, I'm defensive. I have to admit that. I'm a little defensive saying, well, you know, <clears throat> you know just, or I didn't know the songs that well. But, but the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that 
the lack of singing outward was reflective of something that was going on inwardly in my heart and my mind. And this formula, if you will, to remember, repent, and return has been, an, has been very important to me. It's been an important part of my, of my Christian walk to, to remember when I initially became a Christian, when, when the, the majority of this book, and trust me, it still is, I, I didn't understand, I didn't grasp it. I wanted to read it and I wanted to understand it, but I really didn't get it all at that time. And in time, I would continue to grow in it that that I would remember. I would remember what it felt like to be saved, to be, to be washed, to be clean, to feel like my conscience was new, and I, like I had a new start, a fresh beginning, remembering. Remembering is good. There, from time to time, I was raised in Vista. From time to time, I have an appointment in Vista, and, and there's a little uh, restaurant called Curbside Cafe in Vista, and it's right next to the what used to be the Avo Theater, where when I, as a child, my, my, my family and I, we would go and see movies. And I sit, down and I sit down on that street, and I remember, you know, this store was there and that store was there. Remembering is important. And Jesus will tell the church at Ephesus, remember. Remember your early love for me. So let's go ahead and jump into this uh, by word of, of introduction, I want you to know that John writes in the first person. He is experiencing this vision and doing his best to, to, to see and to write, to hear and to write, to see this apocalyptic literature or symbolism, looking at these vast angelic beings, and they're doing the best that he can to write. So he's first person. Second, his voice is pastoral. Decades of being a pastor to people. And so there's something in his heart, there's something in his expression for the people to who he writes to. And then lastly, and I think this is important when looking at the book of Revelation, he's, he is a first century man. We might say that he sees things through the lens of a first century man, but, but he's more than that because as I said in my prayer, he was called, probably encountered Jesus out in John the Baptist's ministry out by the River Jordan, but he's called while he is mending nets, fishing, to follow Jesus. And so he has this rich, rich history. So he writes in the first person, his voice is pastoral, and he sees things through a first century man's lens. The seven letters of the book of Revelation are written with a similar structure. I'm just going to give this to you, and it's a little, it's a little wordy, it's a little, a little bit of history, but but they, the structure is that they feature an address to a particular congregation, as we'll see here tonight, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And so it's written to a specific congregation. Secondly, it's a unique introduction to Jesus. That is, that each letter describes Jesus. And if you look back to chapter 1, you'll see that as John was on the island of Patmos on the Lord Day, Lord's Day, he has, this, he has this vision of Jesus, and we grab, he grabs out of that vision, and he incorporates that into, into, the, uh, into the letters. Not all of the vision, but parts of the vision. Thirdly, each of the letters are an assessment of the church's spiritual condition. Now, let me say something here. I believe that Jesus is the only one that can look at a church and give you the assessment. I know that we try to from time to time. 
I, I know that we may even look at other Christians and think, well, I know what's going on in their lives. And that's not the case. Jesus is the one who sees. One of the things about the, uh, John's vision, again, Revelation 1, is you have Jesus with eyes of fire, meaning he sees everything clearly. There's nothing hidden from his sight. So then he gives an assessment of the church's spiritual condition. Fourth, there is usually issued a verdict or a judgment, not always, but typically in these seven letters about the particular church. Then fifthly, there could be a command from Jesus, an exhortation, six, and then a promise of reward, seven. I want you to think that John is, is writing. He's about 90 years old. He's in his 90s. He's working during the day in a mine. He's in exile, and so he's having this vision, and he takes on parchment, and he writes out each letter to each church. He carefully rolls it, seals it, maybe grabs a candle, drips the wax on the edge of the scroll of the paper, and then when the, the, the pastors from these seven churches or messengers from these seven churches would come to visit him and bring provisions to him, he would take that scroll, he would give it to the messenger, he would give it to the pastor, that pastor would take it to the church, he would snap the wax seal, and he would read the contents of the letters to the church. I want you to just have that idea. The letters provide insight uh, to a literal church. Some Bible teachers say they are also representative, if you look back in church history, to a particular church age. So there's the literal church, a church age, and then they speak to us individually. But don't forget they were written specifically to churches in the first century. Our example tonight is Ephesus. They had in time walked away from their love for Jesus. I want you to think of something that's gradual. It happens over time. I want you to think of something that happens to you and I without our being aware of it sometimes. It's important to understand that our love for Christ must be nurtured in any relationship. I would say in every relationship. You have to care for it. You, you have to give attention to it. My humble opinion is that regular attention, regular Communication, regularly dealing with conflict, regularly communicating with each other helps nurture a relationship. Think small decisions in regarding uh, Ephesus. Small decisions over time had taken a toll. The church at Ephesus was at this point in time about 40 years old. It had existed for four decades. It was made up of two, maybe three generations of Christians. There would have been the initial Christians when Paul established the church, and then there would have been subsequent generations that came in, and they were working together. And one of the most important things is that the gospel was communicated faithfully from one generation to the next generation. Oh my goodness, this is the day in which we live. The gospel being passed like a baton from one generation, from one individual to the next. It was happening in Ephesus. I want you to see the church is being established. Its leadership, its elders were, were seasoned. Its doctrine was pure. The problem with the church at Ephesus is that there was a subtle self-confidence 
that caused their love for Jesus to diminish. There was an independence that began to creep in. Why? Because we're doing okay, everything's fine. And the thing that suffered without much notice was that original affection and love for Christ. Their love for Christ was a past memory, not a present reality. Actually, it's worse than that because, the, as you'll see tonight, the idea is that they abandoned love by turning their hearts to form and function. Jesus tells them that their remedy was to remember how love for Jesus was expressed when they were new believers, when they were young. He says, remember. To the outsider, nothing seemed wrong. There was good teaching, good Bible instruction. This is the church that you wanted to go to if you wanted to learn the scriptures, if you wanted to learn the gospel. There was outreach to the lost. This was a growing church. I think one of the byproducts of persecution is that the church would grow in numbers. Yet what, ha- yet what had once been fervent was now, Jesus would say, dying. So important for us to know. The road to recovery was to follow Jesus' per- Jesus's prescription, to remember, repent, and return. I remember when we moved to Fallbrook in 1981, it was, I think there was one stoplight in the whole town. There's a couple of more than that now. It, it, it's kind of hilly, and, and it's... A, a lot of the, the homes have property on it. And so what would happen from time to time, we're a small church there, uh, people would move in from, oh, I don't know, let's say Orange County. And, and one of their dreams was to have some land, right? They're moving from a home with a front yard and a backyard, but these people, they must have watched Green Acres or something because they had this vision of having property. We got property here, yeah? You know, you, you got a half an acre, buddy. Don't get too excited, I mean... You're going to have to weed whack those things. You know what I mean? But one of the things they wanted to do was to have a garden. And so they would go out and they would get these timbers, these big redwood timbers, and, and they would measure it out and they would lay it out and they would, they would bring in this soil, you know, this rich soil, and they would place it in there. They'd put irrigation system in. They'd put a fence around it to keep the rabbits and the squirrels out. And, and, and then they'd go down to the nursery and they'd pick out, you know, whatever kind of vegetable or fruit that they wanted to have and they would put it in there. They're giving a lot of time and attention to this thing because this was their dream. Part of the reason that they moved to the country, a rural setting. But then something happened that happens in everyone's life. They began to get busy. One night they pull into the driveway and their headlights go real quickly across where the garden is and they would kind of see the weeds and they would see that the fence was broken and the rabbit's over eating some vegetables, his little tummy sticking out and they go to turn on the irrigation system and water is going everywhere. Then they look down and there's weeds everywhere. So then that weekend, they mend the fence. They fix the irrigation pipe. They pull the weeds. They go back down to the nursery and they buy some more buy some more plants and and they have their garden back. And 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 I think that that that's a lesson for you and me. That sometimes life gets busy and that relationship that we value so much, that that individual, that person, and but we're busy and we don't have time and the day's filled up and 
We look at the relationship, and there's weeds, broken pipes, and fences that have been opened. But you still have a relationship. And with a little bit of time, and a little bit of time every day, we nurture that relationship, and it comes back to life. You see, my friends, tonight, wherever you're at with Jesus, if you will remember, repent, and return, that relationship can be as, 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 as rich as it's ever been. Let's go ahead and look at, at um, we have the letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 1 through, uh, I'm sorry, the letter to the church at Ephesus. I'm trying to read these notes here, verses 1 through 7. We begin with the greeting. To the angel, the word angel simply means messenger. It's more of a job description than a proper name. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him. Now, I want to pause here. Because when you say the words of him, these are the words of Jesus. They're authoritative. They're inspired. If we were to go into the Old Testament, we would say, thus saith the Lord your God. And then, and then from that point forward, the prophet would give you the word of the Lord, the vision of the Lord, the message of the Lord for Israel or for an individual. And so when we see these words, John's drawing on, on, on that this is God's word. The words of him who holds the idea securely, the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We're going to stop there. Jesus is the author. He's writing to these churches, but he's also writing to you tonight. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, or even if you haven't even considered beginning your spiritual journey, it's important to consider his words. He alone is the supreme authority of the church. I think anybody that has a position of, a, of leadership in the church, we need to remember that it is Jesus' church. He is the head of the body, and that we all serve him, even when we serve one another. He alone is the supreme authority of the church. Only he can assess it. Only he can do, only he knows the heart of the individual. The wording here is in the form of a royal edict or decree. So we begin with the angel of the church at Ephesus, or the pastor, the elder of the church. Remember, as I said, this letter would have been written upon parchment or upon papyri, and it would have been rolled up, it would have been sealed, and it would have been sent to an individual, an individual who oversaw that church because God put him in that place, in that position. And one of the things that a shepherd or pastor do is that they would teach or feed the, 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 their people and they would protect them. They would stand between the church, their people, and anything that threatened them. That's the idea behind the angel of the church at Ephesus. It is possible that the pastors of the seven churches expanding our thought for a moment would have visited John while he was on Patmos. John probably because he was the last living apostle, would have been viewed as a bishop. That would have been a pastor of pastors. He was the last. 70 AD is in the rearview mirror. There is no Jerusalem. There is no temple any longer. He's in Asia Minor, or off the coast of Asia Minor. It's probable that these pastors knew him personally, met with him regularly. Just a couple of words about the, uh, the city of Ephesus. 
It was a city of privilege. And what I mean by that is from this standpoint, Paul ministered there for three years, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife team, along with Apollos, served there as well, Acts chapter 18. Timothy would pastor in Ephesus. We see that in 1 Timothy 1.3. And according to tradition, the apostle John ministered there the final years of his life. It's from Ephesus where, where he would write his three shorter letters. The letters to the first five churches draw on Jesus' appearance in Revelation 1. John writes that Jesus' words uh, to the pastor of, of Ephesus, that he has seven stars in his right hand, and he is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Interesting to me. Sometimes we need to remember that Jesus is here. That, that he is in our midst. Everything inside of me wants to quote the verse that says, wherever two or more are gathered, I will be there with them. But the fact of the matter is, is that Christ is here. Because if he isn't here, we don't have church. He is in the midst of the, of, of the lampstands. Listen, I want you to think in your mind of the menorah. That which was, that which was in the, 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 the tabernacle and eventually in the, in the temple. The menorah. Within the holy place, it was the sole source of light. And Jesus, Jesus is in the midst of the church. And quite frankly, it, 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 it has less to do with the size of the church as much as it has to do with the individuals who come to meet together and to worship Christ. It says that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. To remind us that Jesus is in perfect position to evaluate this church and also to discipline the church. John saw the glorified Jesus as being a source of comfort during seasons of persecution. On the screen, you'll see a, a quote from Scott Hubbard, where Scott says, The invisible God abides, that is, takes up his place of residency of all places in the visible community of the true church. Jesus is here with us tonight. And if we were to see him like John, we would see him glorified in his right state. As a matter of fact, when you worship, you are by faith looking to him and worshiping him. Your songs fill, fill his presence, are a response to who he is. And it is a conviction of mine that when we worship, we are changed. Our nature is changed and transformed to become like his. In verses 2 and 3, we have the affirmation. Again, these are Jesus' words. I know your works, plural, your toil and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear, that is, you refuse to endure with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know, again, this is a repeat of, chapter, of verse 2. It says, I know you are enduring patiently and bear up for my namesake. They were suffering because they identified with Jesus. That's an interesting thought. 
that if I follow Jesus, there will be a degree of suffering or difficulty that will come because I do so. And you have not grown weary. First, the Lord knows. The idea here is that he possesses perfect and complete knowledge of what's happening and going on in the church. Jesus commends their toil, verse 2. The idea is that they labor to the point of exhaustion. That's descriptive, isn't it? Jesus says, I know your patient endurance, that is their perseverance through very difficult times. I want you to see your physical persecution coupled with spiritual oppression. It was a number of years ago when I was leaving one position at a church, and the young man who would who would have been a part of my ministry was going to actually take over the role. He, he had been ordained as a pastor. It was, it was pretty interesting. Uh, it, it, it was hard for me to leave the ministry because I had so much affection for the people in that ministry. And this young man had, for a period of time, had taught one of the classes, had taught one of the services for this group of people. Then he began to lead some of the, the trips that we were on. And, and, and I began to pull away. It was, it was an interesting dynamic because the students would begin to, to reach for me and I needed to kind of deflect them to him, so much so that by the time I left, the group would have become his. At least theoretically, that's the way it should work that they became his. And then about three months later, he called me. He said, Danny, it's, it's, it seems like when you left, things changed. I thought he was going to talk about the kids. He goes, I feel that preparing my messages, I feel like doing the spiritual things of ministry, I feel a resistance. Is, did we do something wrong? And I called him by his name. I go, nobody, that comes with the territory. I go, when you begin to minister, especially the gospel, you will experience spiritual oppression. And for some of us in the ministry, it can, it can be especially difficult. He said, well, well, what can I do? I remember I went to his house to visit him. And he said, well, what can I do? And I go, well, we have the spiritual disciplines, don't we? We... We teach the word, so we study the word for ourselves, but then we also give the word out. I go, then we pray. We pray for our students, but we also pray for ourselves. I go, I, go, I don't know that spiritual resistance or hostility or oppression, whatever you want to call it, will ever be gone, but I can tell you this, the strength that you need will only be found by spending time in Christ's presence. The church at Ephesus, Jesus commends them for their perseverance, for their perseverance. Verse 2, he tells them that they do, that this church cannot bear with those who are evil. I believe that this has to do with those who were what we would call false teachers. They tested them. Probably one of my favorite verses most recently. Actually, there are two verses here. Because it contains so much, it's found in the book in the uh, Paul's letter to the first letter to the church at Thessalonica, Thessalonica, 
It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Listen to this. I love this. This drives me crazy. You know, considering this just really gets to me. Where Paul says, do not quench the Spirit, capital S. That's telling, isn't it? The idea is do not extinguish the Spirit's guidance, the Spirit's leading. Do not quench the Spirit. And then in verse 20 he says, do not despise, do not devalue or minimize prophecies. Now, Bible teachers have all kinds of ideas as to what he means by prophecies. But I think when I read this, I think of those times that we're worshiping and God, God places an impression upon our hearts and our lives where we're to speak out in a group. Now, it's not equivalent to, to Scripture at all. As a matter of fact, you'll see here in a moment that we're to take everything and test it according to Scripture. But there are those times where you have a word of encouragement for a brother or for a sister, and it seems to fill them, it edifies them, it builds them up, it brings comfort. Let me finish the verse because I'm interrupting myself. Danny, stop interrupting yourself. Do not despise prophecies, plural, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. When he says test here, that is for us, we would hold up everything that is told to us. Everything, you know, have the word of the Lord for you. Well, it's tested by this, by this book right here, by the scriptures. This is authoritative. What other people have to say to us isn't necessarily authoritative. It should be encouraging. It should be life-giving. But he says test it. And the reason I find that interesting is because there was a possibility like the church at Ephesus, that something could be off, something could be wrong. The way I interpret this is that sometimes the prophet is prophet or prophetess is very much gifted, but a part of their personality or their own desire is woven into the prophetic word. Anyways, that's why I'm interested in it. I could tell you don't really care. Years earlier, Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, where he says, pay careful attention, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves, that is, watch yourselves, and to the flock or to the church. Listen to these words, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. They didn't make themselves overseers. They didn't make themselves elders. The Holy Spirit placed them in these positions. When we say more than positions, gave them these great responsibilities. For what purpose were they uh, in positions of leadership in the church? He goes on to say, to care for the, to care for the church of God, which he attain, obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, this is Paul talking. He was going to leave them there. Uh, um, my leaders, he goes, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And then it gets even a little more darker when he says, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted or perverse things. Well, for what purpose? To draw the disciples after them. I believe that in some ways the church at Ephesus took this to heart because Jesus says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles. Danny, in what way? Well, they tested their words. They tested their words, and I believe they tested their lives. They watched the way they lived their lives. Were they working? 
Or did they take from the church? They watched the lives of the men who came and taught. They watched their words. They considered it. They measured it against the scriptures. And Jesus commends them. He commends them for their diligence. Why? Because as spiritual leaders, they were caring for the flock of God. And the reason I'm kind of camping out this for a moment is because we live in a day where you don't question prophecy or you don't question the prophet. And yet Jesus says, I commend you for doing both. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to keep going. They attested those who call themselves apostles or emissaries and are not. They, They found them to be false. On the screen, you'll see a quote from Randy Alcorn where it says, Jesus is the source of all truth, the embodiment of truth, and therefore the reference point for evaluating all truth claims. And so it brings us right back to Christ. Let's go ahead and look at verse 3. I know that you are, you, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Again, this is repetition but Jesus commends them for enduring hardship. When he tells them you have not grown weary, they faithfully withstood the disappointment that comes with ministry, the criticism that comes with ministry, and the ingratitude that comes with ministry. Not at Maranatha Chapel, in other churches, certainly. Not at Maranatha. We look at the verdict in verse 4. But nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Despite of all the good things that... Ephesian church, Jesus had something against them. Jesus comes in, again, the great shepherd, and he's with the church. He's watching the church. He affirms them, and now he has something to show them. He has something to reveal to them. And please please see this. It's because he loves them. I think my father greatly loved me because on many, more than one occasion, he had opportunity to tell me what he had against me. I think I've told you before, my dad, my dad would call me to the garage. It's not something that would necessarily happen in the house. My mom and the girls, my sisters would be, and he'd say, Junior, yeah, come to the garage. Oh, not the garage. Please, not the garage. Jesus has something against them. You've abandoned the love you had at first. The Ephesians chose to pursue other things rather than making their love for Jesus a priority. This is a matter of the heart. On the screen you'll see that Christ is not a hobby. He alone satisfies our souls. Verses 5 and 6, the command. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The terminology is so interesting. You've fallen. You're not where you were. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. One of my favorite parables is the the parable of the prodigal son. It so impacted me when I was a young Christian, get up in the morning before I went to work, and I'd read through the scriptures. And I remember reading that particular story, that particular parable. Notice how many times Jesus 
tells us that the prodigal, after a season of excess, remembers his father. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Remember, remember, remember. Luke 15, verses 17 and 18, it says, But when he came to himself, John MacArthur likes to say that when he came to his senses, when he began to think clearly, he said, he's obviously speaking to himself, either that or the pigs, he says, How many of my father's hired servants, my father's, my father's hired servants, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, And before you, he remembered his father. He came to his senses, and he went home. He came home after he remembered his father. The word repent here means to continually take a stand against sin. It's a change of mind that transforms conduct. On the screen, you'll see of repentance. Repentance is the emergency room of the heart. Repentance is the emergency room of the heart. Verse 5, he says, do the works you did at first. What did you do at first? Go, go back to that moment, that time. If, if there is, in, on your, in your memory, if there was a time where you remember, you know, maybe your conversion, your coming to Jesus was progressive. Maybe it was over time. But, but what did you do at first? What did we do at first? And, and, and maybe it's not even an inventory of what we did. Maybe the question is, why did we do it? Why did I get a Bible and start reading it? Was it because I wanted to learn more about Jesus because I loved him? Why did I get up on a sleep end day? Oh my goodness, I worked swing shift. I got off at 12.30 in the morning, and on Sundays we're rolling out of bed and heading over to Fallbrook to go to church. But why? Was it because we love Jesus? We love God's people? Why did I tell some of the meanest guys on this planet about Jesus? Well, they weren't that bad, but they seemed pretty rough. This construction crew of, of primarily Hispanic guys that were, could be ruthless at times, and their, their vocabulary was colorful, and their rejection of Christianity and church was, was kind of out there. But why would I venture into initiating a conversation with them one-on-one about what Jesus had done in my life? Was it because we loved him? Did we read his word? Did we fellowship with his people? Did we share his message in the beginning? Not knowing very much. I mean, we could probably better say, this is what happened to me? And knew less about this. But was it because we loved him? Was that an indicator? You know, sometimes when I'm doing a wedding, you'll have the couple standing there. And they look good. They look really good. Tuxedo, you know, the wedding gown. And I'll just stand there and think, I should be paying better attention because I'm kind of standing in front of everybody, you know, kind of going through the vows and everything. And I'll stop and think, I wonder if these people are here remember the first time this young man and this young woman came home and said, I met somebody. 
And everybody kind of gets together and says, well, he's like this and she's like that. And then over time, they spend more and more time together and, and, and you know, they're, they're, they're sharing a little bit of life together and everybody starts thinking in their mind, this is going somewhere. This has value. This is going somewhere. And then it comes, you know, she comes with this, this rock about this size. She has to drag it by, you know, she put, look what he, he proposed to me. And everybody, everybody's happy and everybody's excited. Because they had an opportunity to have a front row seat to watch love begin and love grow. And do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? He says, do the work she did at first. He goes on to say, if not, this is the judgment, right? If not, I will come to you. The idea is that I'm on my way and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. One of the troubling things about the church doing a lot of good things is the tendency to do it in our own strength or our own ability or our own gifting. Ultimately, judgment meant that the church would cease to exist. Affirmation in verse 6. Actually, I call this affirmation 2.0. Yet... This you have. So this is another word of encouragement. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You're on the same page with me. Uh, There's a lot of thought as to about the Nicolaitans as to who they are, and we don't have a lot of solid information about them, but there is some speculation. They're also named in Revelation chapter 2, verse 15, in Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamum. There they're noted for their immorality and idolatry. But the Greek word Nicolaus means to conquer the people, causing some to think that the Nicolaitans established a clergy or or, or ministerial uh, group that ruled over the laity. Uh, Their their sin would have been dividing the body of Christ. Let's go ahead and finish up in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a saying that closes each of the seven letters. To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, or in the presence, or in the... Remember the the thief on the cross. Jesus said, uh, you will be in paradise. Today you will be in paradise with me. When he says to the one who conquers, this isn't addressed to super-Christians. This is addressed to us meaning that through God's strength and God's power, we overcome great odds, maybe even the surrendering of our lives, that he will give us the strength. Then lastly, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of our God. One day, you and I, one day we will enter into eternity to be with Jesus, and he will then He will then, as he does now, completely satisfy, completely answer all of our questions and completely satisfy our hunger and our thirst. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. 
Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.